listening to the Bible 126 show. in the book of Daniel. And as I reviewed last time in our introductory session, this is a book that is very dear to me personally. There are many, many people who don't know a lot about their Bible, but they love the book of Daniel. It's understandable. Why? It's, a, it's one of the most readable, one of the most exciting careers. Uh, it's a spectacle through a pivotal part of human history. But it's a very personal book to me because it was the book that just galvanized me in my Christian walk. I had become a Christian when I was, I think, uh, in my teens, 12, whatever. Um, I had a love for the Word of God even earlier. Somehow it's always been there for me. But it was a friend of mine that um, gave me a copy of Sir Robert Anderson's book, which in those days was out of print. Now it's popularly available at any bookstore. But it opened the whole uh, staggering, staggering implications of this book to me. And uh, it really changed my whole life. So Daniel's always been a special book, but it's also a special book to anybody that's an executive. There are two people in the Bible of which no evil is spoken of, besides Jesus, of course. And that's Joseph and Daniel. Both of them are distinctive that nothing evil is said. Both of them were professional executives. So you, those of you that are businessmen might take, take note of that. And both are exemplary in many ways. But this young man, Daniel, deported as a teenager to a foreign location, uh, into a foreign culture, committed himself to maintain faithfulness to his heritage and background. And we saw all that in the last one. But we're going to talk about Daniel chapter 2 uh, tonight, which has to be one of the most dramatic uh, presentations, uh, incidents uh, in, in literature. Uh, chapter 2 of Daniel. A little background of chronology so you get the picture. You remember that Nineveh was the capital of the Syrian Empire. It fell in 612 B.C. to an alliance of the Babylonians and Medians. About 609, Pharaoh Necho uh, led an army against what was left of Syria. Josiah fights um, Necho, and we believe because they, Necho had the Ark of the Covenant. And there's a whole other story behind that you can check out if you're in the mood to. But in any case, Necho gets, I mean, uh, uh, Josiah gets killed. But that's three years later... By then, this young man, who's the son of Nabopolassar, the king of Babylon, defeats the last remaining adversaries, the Egyptians, at the Battle of Karshemesh. And uh, so uh, and on the west bank of the Euphrates, there's this famous battle. It's a milestone battle. But that ends up establishing this little city-state called Babylon, which was a pawn of Assyrian politics for centuries, is now the dominant factor in that region. And uh, Pharaoh ne for, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, on his way back, puts a siege on the city of Jerusalem, which we'll talk, we talked about last time. But once you get the picture, during that siege, he discovers that his dad has died. So he's now not just the prominent general of the army, he's the king of Babylon. He sets up a vassal king, goes home to take over the throne. But you need to get to understand that here's this young guy who's taken over the kingship, and he's inherited these cronies from his dad, and he doesn't know if they have any real capability or just a bunch of con artists. And he's going to put them to the test. Many people, many commentators don't realize the situation as they get into this. The kings, of course, Nabopolassar ruled Babylon from 627 to 605. Remember, we're talking B.C., so they, get, they go lower as you get lighter. And his son, Nebuchadnezzar, picks it up at 605 and, and uh, reigns until uh, uh, 562. We're going to talk about his descendants later uh, when we get to chapter 5. But uh, the organization of the book of Daniel is in two groups of sixes. Six narratives, one through six is history, and seven through 12 are like an appendix of the visions. They're not in chronological order. We'll deal with that when we get there. But uh, we're going to talk about chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, this, this history-changing dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, that Daniel interprets for him. I might point out something very strange is that the book of Daniel is in Hebrew except for 
from the beginning of chapter 2 to the end of chapter 7 is an Aramaic, a very similar language, but it was the Gentile language of that day. And it's interesting because the, those chapters focus on Gentile history in a way that no other part of the Bible does. The Bible generally deals with history, both past and future, through the lens of Israel. But here we have a situation where God is laying out the history of Gentile world from Nebuchadnezzar to the Antichrist. And that period of time is called, by none other than Dr. Luke, the times of the Gentiles. Luke 21, 24, he uses that very phrase. And so uh, we'll get into this. Chapter 2 is this interesting dream. Chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, wherewith his spirit was troubled and his sleep break from him. So he actually woke up from this dream. And from some of the grammar, some, some uh, scholars believe it was multiple dreams, that it was more than once, but that's a conjecture. Then the king commanded to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans for to show the king his dream. So they came and stood before the king. Now, you can wade through the commentaries, and each one of these terms in the Aramaic, the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans, have... Uh, their job descriptions, but they overlap. And most, most competent expositors point out they overlap so much they're used as generics. Some of them are necromancers, some of them are astrologers. These are the advisors. These are the staff people advise the king. And most of them carry the tone of occultic sources, which is, understand, we're talking about a pagan empire. That's their background. That's where they come from. But the, these are job descriptions. And this group of people, and by the way, I might mention Chaldeans. The general term for the region was called Chaldea, and Chaldean can be uh, a term like we would say a Californian or something like that. It also is used as a title of one of these job descriptions because the Chaldean culture was very much into the occultic kinds of things. So you'll get confused sometimes when it says Chaldeans. Yes, they were all Chaldean in the sense of living in that region, but in this case, the Chaldean here is used as, as a title of an advisor, a counselor, if you will. So he calls his top staff people together in verse 2. And uh, I won't get into the different things. I just covered that. Okay. The king said to them, I have dreamed a dream, and my spirit was troubled to know the dream. This isn't a casual request. He's really upset about this, and for good reason. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king. See, there it's used as a title. Spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac. O king, live forever. Syriac, by the way, is a translation of the term. From this verse on is when it turns to Aramaic, all the way through to the end of chapter 7. Then spake the Chaldeans to the king in Syriac. O king, live forever. Tell thy servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. Tell us what your dream is, and we'll go back to our libraries and dig out Freud and whatever and find, tell you what it's all about. And the king answered to the, and said to the Chaldeans, The thing is gone from me. In other words, he's, he's posing as if he can't remember it. Scholars are divided. Some say he didn't remember it and so forth. Um, but for reasons I'll show you, I'm among those that believe he was faking that to find out whether these guys could cut it. I think his belief was that if he told them what the dream was, they'd con up some kind of interpretation for their, just to save their skin. He's really putting them to the test to see if their skills really amount to anything. He says, the thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me... See, now he's going to explain his professional development program. It's very important to understand the organizational environment you're in. The thing is gone from me. If you will not make known unto me the dream with the interpretation thereof, two parts, make known unto me the dream and the interpretation thereof, ye shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made a dunghill. That's known as explaining it to him more clearly. Okay? <laughs> and by the way, as we talked about last time, these, this was not a guy that made idle threats. Nebuchadnezzar's career, in fact, his whole reign is characterized by the fact he was probably the most absolute despot that you can imagine. What he said, he, he, he roasted his officers over an open fire and so forth. He, did, he, he didn't mess around. Uh, when you get to the Persians, they can't do that. They may be, in, they rule, but when they make a law, they can't change the law they made. Very interesting thing that you'll find in the scripture in chapter 6, but also is, 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 is confirmed archaeologically. 
No, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar called the shots. But if you show the dream and the interpretation thereof, ye shall receive of me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and the interpretation. He wants both. See, he's smart enough to know that anybody can interpret, give you a, a speculation, a conjecture. Show me what the dream was. You know, you got sources. If you say, how good are your information sources? Now, of course, they get unglued, understandably. Verse 7. They answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will show the interpretation of it. King Edward said, I know of a certainty that ye would gain the time, because ye see the thing is gone from me. Literally, what he's saying is, you're trying to buy time. He, 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 he doesn't buy their proposal. But if ye will not make known unto me the dream, there is but one decree for you. <laughs> for ye have prepared lying and corrupt words to speak before me till the time be changed. Therefore tell me the dream, and I shall know that ye can show me the interpretation thereof. See, he's using the one to qualify the other. Makes sense, doesn't it? Well, they didn't think so. The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, There is not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. They're right about that. Often you hear out of the mouths of the pagans truth. It was Caiaphas, speaking of Christ, saying it's expedient for one man to die for the people. I don't think he had any idea how prophetic he really was speaking. Anyway, there's not a man upon the earth that can show the king's matter. Therefore, there is no lord, no king, no lord, no ruler that asks such things at any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. In other words, you're, they're confronting the king saying, you're outrageous, in effect. And it's a rare thing that the king requireth, and there's none other that can show it before the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Truth. And that's what we're about to watch unfold in a way that affected not only Daniel's welfare, but yours and mine as we go forward month to month in, in the horizon ahead. For this cause, the king was angry and very furious and commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. You understand what he did? He eliminated a job description. Anybody with that, in that job description was out, no longer politically correct. Daniel is in that category. He's not present, but he's in that, that building, in that section, in that area. Okay? The decree went forth that the wise men should be slain, and they sought Daniel and his fellows to be slain. See, that's not obvious until you realize that Daniel is in that category. Nebuchadnezzar had decided that the advisors that he inherited from his dad aren't worth much, and he knew how to reduce headcount. So... When, then Daniel answered with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard. He's actually captain of the executioners, by the way, and uh, chief marshal. Chief, uh, Chaldean chief of the executioners is what, uh, slaughtermen, really. Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, which was gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the king known to Daniel. In other words, in other words, Arioch explained what just happened. Then Daniel went in and desired of the king that he would give him time and that he sh would show the king the interpretation. And then Daniel went to his house and made the thing known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. He said, boy, guys, we're going to have a prayer meeting tonight. <laughs> that they would desire the mercies of God of heaven concerning this secret that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Get the picture. It's a done deal. The heavies blew it before the king. The word is out. The decree is done. Daniel's caught up in the whirlpool here, he and his buddies. But he gets time, tells his buddies, we're going to pray about it. That's exciting stuff. We read this in the text and say, isn't that great? What a man of faith, isn't it great? And then tomorrow morning we face some setback some reversal in our lives and we pray as a last resort. What's wrong with this picture? And guess what happened? Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel did what? He blessed the God of heaven. First thing, to, one of the things you'll discover as you study Daniel carefully as we go through all these various adventures that one of the things that characterizes Daniel, he's a man of prayer. He prayed before anything, after anything. He was terrific. 
And one of his prayers is known as the interrupted prayer of the Old Testament. In one of his prayers, he prays so intensely, you can feel him tremble even in the English translation. And Gable shows up, interrupts it, and gives him the most incredible four verses in the Bible, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. Daniel Anson said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings, he setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise, and knowledge to them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. Without looking, how many things did he detail? Good for you. Good guess. Seven. Right. Amazing, isn't it? What a coincidence. I thank thee and praise thee, O Lord God of my fathers, who hast given me wisdom and might, and hast made known unto me now what we desired of thee, for thou hast now made known unto us the king's matter. Boy, you must have been exciting. Not just because he and his buddies now were spared, or likely to be, but what an exciting thing. All the wise men of the greatest ruler of the region blew it. And he's going to go in there and you're going to see the most, the most fun upstaging, no, the second most fun upstaging uh, in the Bible. It's fun stuff. Therefore, Daniel went in unto Arioch. Now, Arioch's the intermediate supervisor here. Uh, Therefore, Daniel went into er, unto Arioch, whom the king had ordained to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus unto him, Destroy not the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show unto the king the interpretation. I want you to know something. He, it was Daniel's initiative to go to Arioch, right? You're going to learn something about bureaucratic behavior here in a minute. But Dan, this is Daniel's initiative, right? Arioch is just a go-between. But he's a bureaucrat. In verse 25, Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste. He's rushing. For Daniel's sake? No, for his own. And said thus unto him, I have found a man of the captain. I love that, you see. As if of this, it's only with Arioch's heroics that he was able to identify this resource for the king. You get the picture? He should run for Congress. <laughs> or Senate, I guess, yeah. Anyway, I have found a man of the captives of Judah that will make known unto the king the interpretation. And the king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, he's reminding us that was his Babylonian name. You'll discover that with only a couple exceptions, we stick with the Hebrew name, but anyway. Art thou able to make known unto me the dream which I have seen and the interpretation thereof? I want you to notice carefully how Daniel answers. He says, Art thou able? And Daniel says, Not me. Notice how careful Daniel is to give the credit to where it is due. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king hath demanded cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers show before the king. They're probably standing in the back row here. He's up in front, in front of the throne. The secret which the king hath demanded cannot these guys uh, show unto the king. But there is a God in heaven that revealeth secrets. Praise God for that. And maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Key phrase. This tells us right up front what the subject of the dream is. It's not just a dream of some you know, other issue. The purpose of the dream is to show the king what will happen in the future. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. And Daniel goes on to describe the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed, what should come to pass hereafter? And he that revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, He's going to underscore something here. This secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation of the king, that thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. That word terrible in the English we use differently. The word that's closest, the way we would translate today probably would be awesome. Not terrible in the sense of fearful, but terrible in the sense of awesome, awestruck. You understand the nuance there? Okay. 
This image's head, apparently, by the way, just to go for it, it's apparently a man standing, but he's made of different metals from the head on down. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass or bronze, and his legs of iron, his feet part iron and part of clay. Now, one of the places to be careful here, many people assume there's five things there. There's four. You see, there's gold, silver, brass, and iron. It happens that the feet are iron that are impure mixed with clay. You and I would tend to organize this like five things, except for the fact when we get to Daniel 7, God is going to present the same material to Daniel with in a totally different set of idioms. And it's very clearly four levels, and you'll see that as we go. By the way, these metals are arranged in the order of preciousness the way we would think of it, but that's misleading. They happen to be, uh, run out in specific gravity. Gold has a specific uh, gravity, water is a unit in this, in this scheme. Uh, gold is 19 and a half, silver 10 and a half, bronze 8, iron 5, and iron mixed with clay would be something lighter, say probably like, you know, uh, closer to 1.92, something like that. But in other words, they, de they degenerate in terms of, of their... Uh, of value, but they also degenerate. Uh, the, the first, the, as you go to the first four, they increase in strength. They increase in strength until you get to the last one. But then Daniel continues, Thou sawest till a stone was cut out without hands, strange, which smote the image upon its feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. And then was the iron the clay, the brass, the silver, the gold, broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer thrashing floors and the wind carried them away that no place was found for them and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain that filled the whole earth. Let's face it, if that was your dream and someone's explaining it to you, that's pretty weird. The metals you might work out somehow, but what is the stone and the mountain that's covering the whole, what is all this about? This is the dream, and we will tell the king the interpretation there before the king. Thou, king, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. Who gave him his power? God. One of the points Daniel's making to Nebuchadnezzar is all that he has, his power, isn't his achievement, it's God's gift. That's going to come to crisis in the fourth chapter, chapter after next, because Nebuchadnezzar is going to get on an ego trip, and God's going to give Nebuchadnezzar a lesson in pride. And that lesson is so vivid that Nebuchadnezzar writes the chapter. Chapter 4 is written by Nebuchadnezzar. And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field, the fowls of the heaven, hath he given into thy hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. By this time, Nebuchadnezzar is feeling pretty good. But Daniel goes on. This image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part iron and part of clay. Here's a sketch to sort of dramatize this for you. Um, we have this metal image. I presume he probably looks something like this. He had a head of gold, arms and chest of, of silver, and belly and thighs uh, of brass, legs of iron, and the feet are iron mixed with clay. A stone comes and smites it at its feet, and all this crushing blows away, and a mountain grows to fill not just that region, but the entire world. Pretty strange stuff. No wonder Nebuchadnezzar's confused. He's... I don't think he forgot it. Some scholars figured he wasn't, you know, he didn't remember it. I think he's doing that to qualify his advisors. We know, as we piece the pieces together, that he, of course, well, first of all, Daniel identifies he's Babylon, and he's going to talk about the succeeding empires, Persia, Greece, Rome in two phases, Rome I and Rome II, I'll call it. Most scholars recognize that the fourth empire is in two parts, because all these others are going to get successively conquered by the predecessor. 
but no one ever conquers Rome. It disintegrates into pieces, but is then called to be regathered. And we're watching that happen on, in the world today, I believe. Babylon ruled from 606 to 539 B.C. when the Persians didn't destroy Babylon. They conquered Babylon. We're going to read about that in Daniel chapter 5. Persia ruled from 539 to 332, virtually two centuries. They made Babylon a secondary capital. But a young man who conquered the known world before he was 29 fell on his bed crying because there are no more worlds left to conquer. A guy by the name of Alexander, he conquered the Persians. And he ruled a short time because he died. He made Babylon's capital. He died there. And his four generals divide up the, the Greek Empire. But it, conquers, it gets conquered by Rome in about 68 B.C. following. Who conquered Rome? The answer is nobody. We'll deal with that more later. Anyway, after Daniel explains that you, Nebuchadnezzar, are this head of gold, he says, after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. Interesting, if you study history, it's interesting. When Cyrus the Great, the Persian, conquered the Persian Empire, he prided himself in absorbing the cultures. When he had slaves, he freed them. In fact, when he conquers the Hebrew, he lets them go back. He donated to the temple. He was very, very enlightened from our point of view. Um, and the Greeks, of course, had their way of, of, of raising what they perceived as the cultural standard of their, of their conquests. Rome took pride in what they destroyed. If you read Roman history, you even, you, uh, uh, you even pick that up in some of the entertainments, in the Gladiator and some of these more well-researched uh, uh, episodes. You notice the Romans took pride. They, they proved themselves by destroying the the, 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 uh, the, the sacred uh, things to the, the cultures that they were conquering. They shall break in, bruise, break in pieces and bruise. Now the Fertile Crescent, of course, as we call it, is the cradle of civilization, many people feel. Egypt, Assyria were the early empires succeeded by Babylon, the Babylonians. And uh, the city of Babylon, in the period we're talking about, rises from a city-state to become an empire under uh, Nebuchadnezzar and then Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, but it's going to be uh, conquered by an alliance. Cyrus uh, uh, was, was, uh, had mixed parents. One was uh, Persian and one was Median. So he was both Mede and Persian, and he, used, he, he got those two powerful groups together into a one empire. That's why some people call it the Medo-Persian Empire. It's what we would call the Persian Empire. And it conquers Babylon and gets far more extensive. That's the silver one in, in, in the idiom of Daniel um, Two, uh, two. And of course, the Persian Empire gets conquered by the, by the Greeks. And the Greeks go all the way to India, by the way. Understand that. And uh, Greeks, of course, under Alexander the Great, fabulous, fabulous character, career worth uh, studying. And four generals divided up when he dies. Cassander takes the east, then Lysimachus. But the two powerful guys are Seleucus that takes the, the east and Ptolemy, which takes the south. And the dynasties of these, the descendants of these two generals then uh, deal with history until Rome rises. And uh, uh, they, of course, uh, have most of their contests in this buffer state called Israel. And uh, this covers a period of time that the scholars like to call the, the silent years, the years between the testaments. Except they're not silent at all. They're written in advance. We're going to discover when we get to Daniel 11, from chapter 5 to 35, it so details the history that uh, cynics, or uh, so-called liberals, um, have said that it just proves that Daniel must have been written later. But they're brutally assaulted by the facts. Daniel was black and white, long with part of the Old Testament. was translated into Greek three centuries before the Gospel period, and so on. Anyway, those 400 years are so detailed that, this, that, that they're undeniably prophetic. But uh, anyway, moving back to Daniel, he said, The fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces and subdueth all things, as iron uh, that breaketh all these shall break in pieces and bruise. Well, we all know then, of course, what succeeded the Greek Empire was the Roman. We even speak of the Greco-Roman culture. The, the Romans, of course, uh, extended it far more to the west uh, than, uh, than the previous empires did, the Roman Empire. And we'll talk more about this all when we get to Daniel chapter 7. But then Daniel goes on and says, Whereas thou sawest the feet and the toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, 
The kingdom shall be divided or specifically fragmented. See, it wasn't conquered by a succeeding empire. It broke into pieces. We know from history each one of those pieces has had their day in the sun. The Dutch had their day. The Germans several times. The French several times. The Spanish and so on. And the British. Each had their chance. But never an empire in the sense of the ancient ones. And the toes of the feet were part of iron, part of clay. So the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Now, I have taught this passage for better part of three or four decades. And I read this verse hundreds of times. But it was relatively recently, only a few years ago, that I was quite startled that I had never paid attention to what it said even though I read it over and over and over again. See, there's all kinds of speculations among scholars. What does the miry clay represent? And I, like most of the conservative expositors, would point out that clay seems to suggest people. You're the potter, I'm the clay, and so forth. You can find examples where clay is used of people. And that's maybe, that may be exactly what it means, except there's some interesting things here. It turns out that it's all in Aramaic, not Hebrew, which makes it a little more complicated, but miry clay is clay made from dust. And dust, of course, is idiomatic of death in many ways. So it's iron mixed with miry clay. But here's the phrase that I had some experts really check out for me to make sure I wasn't out in, in the... I'm, I, I'm known as the apostle of the arcane or, you know, part of the, the uh, you know... Fringe types. They shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. See, when you talk about the miry clay, he uses a personal pronoun, they. It is a pers- it's a personal pronoun, they. So it represents people of some kind. But here's the strange part. They shall mingle themselves with what? The seed of men. That means that the they have to be something other than the seed of men. Wow, that's pretty weird. And uh, it shall not cleave to one another, even as iron does not mix with clay. So what I'm going to do, since I checked the time and I have a little time to squeeze shoehorn into this lesson, a review of some things that you regulars are, be, bear with me, those of you the regulars that just finished Genesis with us are all familiar with where I'm headed here. I'm going to give you just a brief snapshot review of a very controversial view of the scripture, but one that has to its advantage It's the traditional view of the ancient rabbis. It's the traditional view of the early church. There are some modern theories popularly taught in most seminaries that are clearly unscriptural and wrong. So bear with me if this is going to be disturbing to you. And I won't take the time to defend it thoroughly in this brief snapshot. If you find it that's not familiar to you and you want to dig into it, I encourage you to get our materials. We've got several materials that will deal with this, and you can judge for yourself from the scripture whether this is left field or not. But they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. Miry clay is made of mire or dust. The context of the dream seems to imply that whatever they are, they constitute a significant political constituency. We're not talking about a little 1% fringe thing here. We're talking about somebody that's apparently meaningful enough to keep this empire from gaining the strength that it's seeking. Okay? One possibility that I don't really get into too much is cloning. Well, maybe we touch on it. We're in a day today where we tamper with the human genome. But I want to go back, not, not, not head down the biotech channel, just go back and look at Genesis 6, very important chapter. When four disciples came to Jesus for a confidential briefing on his second coming, he gave them a two-chapter answer in Matthew 24 and 25 and so on. He made a remark that's disturbing. He says, as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, to understand what he said, you have to understand what were the days of Noah like. Well, they were sinful. Well, yeah, but so are, so are a lot of, you know, that, that's not distinctive in a sense. What does this really mean? Let's go back and look at the days of Noah. I want you to mark in your Bibles Genesis chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, and I want you to notice that those two verses are a single sentence. It's astonishing to me how many scholars fail to note that it's a single sentence. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them 
that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and took them wives of all which they chose. We're going to explore this phrase, sons of God, what it's translated from. But I want you to notice that we're talking daughter, men in general, daughters in general, and these characters, whatever they are, took daughters of men that they were fair and took them wives of all which they chose. We're not talking Sethites or Canaanites here. We're talking just daughters in general. Okay? Who are the sons of God? Key phrase. Let's explore it. Benai HaElohim in the Hebrew. It is a term in the Old Testament that is invariably used of angels. It's a, the term refers to a direct creation of God. The word sons of God means it's a direct creation of God. You and I, when we're born, are not direct creations of God. We're sons of Adam, not sons of God. In John chapter 1, when Jesus came, he said, He came unto his own, but his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be what? The sons of God, or the children of God, or the sons of God, right. You and I, if we're sons of God, are because we've been regenerated, we've been born again. That's what the term born again means. That's what it refers to. Angels are direct creation of God, so they're called B'nai HaElohim throughout the Old Testament. Let's look at that. It's a, always used the term of angels. That's in Job 1, 6, 2, 1, 3, 3, 8, 7. In the New Testament, Luke 20 uses the equivalent phrase. In the book of Enoch, which is not part of the Bible, don't misunderstand me, but it's a widely venerated book from the 2nd century B.C. to about the 2nd century A.D. And uh, it's very useful for, 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 for several things. It tells you what the rabbis believed. It tells you the grammar and the syntax. We learn about the language. And the book of Enoch uses the same language and it's clearly referring to angels. The Septuagint the Hebrew that was translated into the highly precise scientific Greek. And it clearly makes them angels. The greatest Hebrew scholars in the 3rd century B.C. translated it to understand these were angels. Now why is this such a problem? Well, came past when men began to multiply the face of the earth, the daughters were born of them, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair. They saw the daughters of men, Benoth Adam. These are not daughters of Cain or Seth, they're in general, you follow me? They're daughters of Adam, Exbonoth Adam is what Hebrew actually says. I mention this because modern exposition has twisted this to mean something a little less uncomfortable, but it's just not scriptural. But here's the key verse in verse 4 of chapter 6. There were Nephilim, that's the Hebrew word, Nephilim or Nephilim, in the earth in those days, and also after that. Notice that phrase, also after that. This was not confined to just before the flood. That was the primary cause of the flood to deal with this issue, but apparently there are incidents subsequent. Many people overlook that. The Nephilim. We'll talk about this word nephal. Nephilim is the fallen ones. It comes from the verb nephal in the Hebrew to fall, to be cast down, to fall away or desert. These are fallen angels, or they're products of the fallen angels, the fallen ones. Hagibarim, the mighty ones, is also a term that comes up. In the Greek, they were translated as gigantes, which means the earthborn. But that word gets transliterated into English as giants. They did happen to be giants, but that's not what that word means. It means the earthborn. From gigas, meaning earthborn. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he also is flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days. That's where the, the uh, gigantes comes in. And also after that, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, that they bare children to them, the same became the mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Now something else, you get down to verse 9, it speaks of Noah. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. This word perfect in the Hebrew is tamim. It means without blemish, sound, healthful, without spot, unimpaired. It's usually used of physical defects. But Noah's genea his genealogy was unimpaired. What this verse implies is that one of the distinctions of Noah was that his genealogy was not clouded by these shenanigans of the fallen angels. Satan apparently was trying to corrupt the human genome by introducing this corruption to prevent a Messiah. By the way, this view I'm expressing is confirmed at least twice, actually three times, in the New Testament. 
Jude chapter 6, 6 and 7, Jude says, The angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of that great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth and as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Here Jude himself, brother of the Lord, puts a, creates a parallel between what these angels did and what the Sodomites were doing. In other words, going after strange flesh left their own habitation, their own habitat, and uh, going after strange flesh. This habita word habitation only appears twice. It's called Oketerian, only twice in the New Testament. It occurs there in June 6, but it also occurs in 2 Corinthians 5.12. For this, in, where Paul says, in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with the house which is from heaven. And the word here is the same word. The word, the thing that those angels, the fallen angels, disrobed themselves from in order to indulge themselves on the earth are, is the habit that we are aspiring to in our resurrection bodies, apparently. That term in the Greek may be a very te more technical term than most theologians recognize. But also Peter talks about all this. He says, For God spared not, if, if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to Tartarus, he delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved on judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved no one. He goes on. He even ties it to the Noah experience. The word Tartarus only appears here in the New Testament, but it's a widely used term in the Greek. What does Tartarus mean? It's the, it's the Greek term for dark abode of woe, a pit of darkness in the unseen world. In Homer's Iliad, it is said it is as far below Hades as the earth is below heaven. Where is it? I don't know, but I don't want to go there. Okay. <laughs> now, what's commonly taught in many seminaries is what's called the lines of Seth view. This is a view that emerged in the 5th century. It has no scriptural support. Uh, it, 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 it's un, it, it argues that what we're dealing with here are the lines of Seth were the good guys, and they shouldn't have intermarried with the lines of Cain, and that's what, the, what they're dealing with. Uh, it's, it's hard for me to express it because it's totally unscriptural. But anyway, the fallen angel view, the one I've expressed to you, is the view of the ancient Hebrew scholars all through the ancient Hebrew rabbinical literature. It's, it was the view of the early church. It prevails still among the conservative scholars today, and it is confirmed in the New Testament. And uh, it's interesting that we find legends of the same thing in every ancient culture on the planet Earth. Sumer, Assyria, Egypt, Incas, Mayan, Gilgamesh, Persia, Greece. The, the Greek mythology that we all have some exposure to is all about demigods, gods and demigods and so forth. Those, the demigods called titans would be called in the Hebrew the Nephilim. In South Sea Islands, the Sioux Indians, even in America, they, have, they all have legends of star people that came down and commingled with people that were giants. And Even uh, uh, Buffalo Bill in his autobiography makes reference to some of these strange episodes. Atlas and Hercules, common in, myth, in folklore, were, were Nephilim, byproducts, hybrids between the gods and man, if you will. And the angel view is the traditional rabbinical thing. Book of Enoch, I've mentioned these, Testament of Twelve Patriarchs. Uh, Josephus, Septuagint, these, this, is not, this is not new stuff. The early church fathers, Philo, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Athenagoras, Tertullian, and so forth, they, they all held these views. Even modern scholarship, go right through the list, Pember, Dehan, McIntosh, Dillich, Gabling, Arthur W. Pink, um, Donald Gray Barnhouse, Henry Morris, Arnold Fuchtenbaum, and of course, uh, Hal Lindsey, Chuck, uh, Chuck Smith, and others. Um, the Seth view that's commonly taught doesn't deal with the text accurately. It infers separation, which doesn't come until chapter 11 and following. It infers the godliness of the Sethites, which is not true because the first Sethite was the one that led the rebellion against God. It infers that the Canaanites, were a, the, the, the Canaanites are a subset of the Adamites. That's not what the text talks about. It also doesn't deal with the fact that what the text says is the, the unnatural offspring of these unions were unnatural. Trying to say that when a believer marries an unbeliever, you may have monsters, but not, they're not monstrous. They're not genetically, you know, different. Of course, the New Testament confirms it. But the reason I emphasize this is you will not understand most of the Old Testament, the post-flood history, until you understand what the Rephaim were. And these are Nephilim. When, when, when Moses sent the 12 spies into the land, the 10 came back with the report. They're terrified because there were, verse 33 of Numbers 13, there were Nephilim in the land in those days. Satan always has tried to thwart the plan of God. He tried to corrupt Adam's line in Genesis 6. Adam, and as God increasingly reveals his plan of redemption, it allows Satan to focus attacks to Abraham. Destruction of the male line in Exodus 1. Pharaoh, remember, even after he let him go, Pharaoh went to try to wipe him out. 
when God told Abraham, 400 years later, your descendants are going to come back to this land. That let's, gave Satan four centuries to lay down a minefield called the Canaanite tribes. And that's why God told Joshua to wipe out every man, woman, and child of certain tribes. Why? Because he had a genome problem. And again, when God says it's going to be through David's line, David's family is singled out by Satan and so forth. So we have, see, after the flood, the Nephilim also after that, verse 4 said, and these, the Rephaim, the Emim, the Horim, and the Zabzumim were, were, were Nephilim. And uh, the term is often, it comes from a root meaning dead. It's often translated dead. That's why you have to get behind the English translation to see the, the precision here. Arba, Anak, the Anakim, these are all descendants of these things. Um, Remember Og, the king of Bashan, king of the giants, up in, in Deuteronomy 3 and elsewhere. And, of course, Goliath and his four brothers were descendants of Anak and so forth. And we find uh, up in the Golan Heights, the Gilgal Raphaim, and there's, there's, this has never been researched adequately. In Genesis chapter 3, when God announces the, ver the seed of the woman, he also announces the seed of the serpent. He says, I'll put enmity, speaking of Satan, God says, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. He shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. From this verse, we get one of the titles of the Messiah, the seed of the woman. But we overlook the fact there's another seed mentioned here, seed of the serpent. And he's coming. Some people believe he's alive today. There's a, the whole biblical thing is a conflict between two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, sometimes called the red dragon in Revelation 12, the coming world leader, commonly called the Antichrist. And, of course, the false prophet who caused the world to worship the, the, the coming world. It's, a, it's a, satanic, a satanic trinity in a sense. These forces are behind the world powers today. And if you know your Bible, you can watch them play out visibly. Let's get back to Daniel. Thought I'd never do it, did you? <laughs> in the days of these kings, he's speaking of the, the ten toes and so forth. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. He's explaining this mountain that's coming. Shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. For a thousand years? No, forever. For one thousand years, some interesting things happen. Satan's bound for a thousand years. Some people say, we're in that already. Really? <laughs> Satan's chain is too long. Right? No, it's coming. But it's coming soon, apparently. For as much as thou sawest, the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. In your notes, as your project, you might take the concept of stone or rock and make a list from Genesis to Revelation how it's used as an idiom of Jesus Christ. In uh, 1 Corinthians 10.4, the rock, speaking of, of the, the, ex, the, the wilderness wanderings, the rock that followed them was Christ, Paul tells us. He doesn't mean literally, he's speaking idiomatically. And uh, we'll come back to that in a minute. The stone cut out of the mountain without hands. It's a supernatural stone. It break in pieces the iron, the brass, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. The dream is certain, and the interpretation thereof is sure. So we clearly have Daniel and the word of God underscoring that this is prophetic. It isn't just some kind of moral lesson or something like that. This is a, a crisp, definitive prophecy of history written in advance. Now, I'm presenting to you the premillennial view. There's some other views around. We don't, we'd, we'd waste a lot of time going down all the rabbit trails that have been generated by various people. I'll be just candid about it, that we have a view that we're presenting here. It's kind of called the premillennial view because we believe that this kingdom is yet to be established. There is a sense that the word kingdom of God can mean everything. But the problem with the word that can mean everything, it doesn't dis discriminate. See, if I tell you that I'm an American, that doesn't tell you where I live. I tell you, I live in Idaho, that comes closer. I tell you, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, that's even... See, information is a function of the rest of the universe it excludes. So a more precise term carries more information than a general term. And some terms are so general, they carry very little meaning. One of, one of the terms in technology cultures is the word system. It is so misused, you don't know what they're talking about, necessarily. you have to set a context. What do you mean by the system? Um, and there are other examples, but... Anyway, so we're going to talk about the premillennial view. We think this word kingdom refers to a very specific thing. The stone here will become a mountain suddenly, not gradually. That's clearly implied. 
Christianity doesn't fill this, uh, didn't fill the whole earth at Christ's first advent. So this, this stone becoming a mountain doesn't refer to the church. Many people are confused about that. Though Christ came in the days of the Roman Empire, he did not destroy it. See, you follow me? Christ, this stone is going to come back and destroy the, the reigning kingdom at the time he returns. He's talking about his second coming, not his first. During Christ's time on the earth, the Roman Empire did not have ten kings at once. They will at the end. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's statue suggests that Christ comes to establish his kingdom. Ten rulers will be in existence and will be destroyed by him. Actually, uh, three will slightly precede his coming because the Antichrist is going to wipe out three and seven are going to go with him. Anyway, the Christ is now the chief cornerstone of the church, according to Ephesians 2.20. He's also the stone that causes unbelievers to stumble, according to 1 Peter 2.8. He is not yet the smiting stone as he will be when he comes again. You see, the, the stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. Who's he talking about? Jesus Christ. You find that term is used throughout the scripture with astonishing uh, consistency. There is a principle. When you have something interesting that you've discovered, you won't get anywhere unless you give it a fancy label. So the scholars called it, this is the principle of expositional constancy. You see, when you get to the, thir uh, the parables of Matthew 13, the field is the world, the seed is the word, you know. Well, it's consistent through all the parables. The birds are the ministers of Satan. Well, wait a minute. Gee, in the fourth parable, the church becomes a, a tree big enough that all the birds go and dwell in it. Those birds earlier were ministers of Satan. Ooh, really? I'll let you check that out. The stone, that is the Messiah, will crush and end all the kingdoms of the world when he returns. He didn't do that in his first coming. Much as you might, some people try to twist the scripture saying he did. Well, he rules in our heart. No, he's going to rule with a rod of iron. Church has not and will not conquer the world's kingdom. There are a lot of Christians that believe it's their job to prepare the world for the coming of the Lord. No, it's getting worse and worse and worse. The Lord's going to have to straighten it out. There's a group called Kingdom Now, or the Dominionist. It goes by several labels. Hal Lindsey wrote a book, The Next Holocaust. The Ro excuse me, The Road to Holocaust. And... Uh, uh, he wrote it in our apartment when we were living in Balboa Bay Club many years ago. Quite a book. Not one of his big bestsellers, but one of the most important fundamental books he wrote. Because he's really on that cake. The, whole, the fact that there will be another holocaust and the, it, it will be caused by the same people who caused the first one, the silent pulpits across the world. The people who, did the, who are responsible for the holocaust in Europe are the silent pulpits that didn't speak out up front. And the same thing's happening again. We have an administration that's populated with all kinds of Christians, people who profess Christ. I understand from my contacts that members of the Joint Chiefs and the Cabinet are professing Christians, and that's great. Don't, I'm not knocking it. Don't misunderstand me. Most of them come from this kind of a background, that, that they have no grasp of the role of Israel in God's plan. That's scary for a lot of reasons. The church is not a kingdom with a political realm, but the future millennium will be. That's the difference. Anyway, let's move back. Uh, verse 46. The king Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and worshipped Daniel and commanded that they should offer an oblation and sweet odors unto him. Nebuchadnezzar was impressed. He had to be because he recognized his dream. How did this young kid know what he dreamt that night? The king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Then the king made Daniel a great man, and gave him many great gifts, and made him rule, ruler over the whole province of Babylon. Not the whole kingdom, but, that, but the palace area. Right? Sort of like a prime minister, I guess, in a sense. Rule over the whole province of Babylon, and the chief of the governors over all the wise men of Babylon. Now, can you imagine the conflict in the back row? These guys had a death sentence. And this young kid comes up there and saves their bacon. So they got a problem. They should be grateful. And yet, envy takes over. And they're going to take over in the next chapter. They're going to get... They're going to get these guys, these January's three friends. We'll show them, you know.
Hey, don't be too hard on them. We're the same way. God sends his Messiah, promised to Adam and Eve through, and, and reconfirmed all through history. And he comes and fulfills hundreds of, spe- hundreds of specifications. He arrives on the very day that Gabriel told Daniel he was going to, to present himself a king riding a donkey. What did they do? Were they grateful? They'll crucify him. Boy, what a great time to see the passion. Put it in faith. The only, Mel Gibson's movie is terrific except for one thing. It doesn't tell you who he was. He did plenty. I'm not knocking it. Don't misunderstand me. But it, it, it's astonishing to me how people who claim to be experts have no grasp on who Christ is. You've got people writing novels, def- uh, libeling the guy that's going to be sitting on the judgment seat. Boy, then I were talking at dinner. It's going to be, we're, we're going to be fascinated to see how God deals with certain things we know about. Then Daniel requested of the king, and he sent Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So his three friends get to get, also get the major honors here, but Daniel is the kingpin. He's a phenomenal guy because he not only rises to power in Babylon, but when Babylon is conquered by their enemies, he rises to equivalent power in the Persian Empire. He takes over a hereditary priesthood in Persia. Can you imagine how, they, how that grabbed him? A priesthood that was very proud in the first place, that hereditary, it was, it, it was, a, it was an ethnic, uh, uh, um, uh, it's an ethnic thing. And they get taken over by this Jew. They didn't go over well, so they engineer the lion's den thing. Anyway, that's getting ahead of our story here. In the next session, I want you to, before you get to the next, as you get to chapter 3, I want you to picture now these guys that were in the back row who have this internal conflict going on. They should be grateful. This young kid, through prayer and the action of the God of Israel, saved their bacon. But they're upset because they had positions of power and this kid and his buddies are now, have upstaged them and, and um, they're going to try to get even. And they fan Nebuchadnezzar's ego. B, if you're in a position of power, one of the things you learn is you distrust everybody. You have to. Everybody's got an agenda. I don't know, large corporations, the chief executive officers, got a real problem because everybody he meets is either a customer, a shareholder, a debtor, a creditor, you know, has some role. And so you wonder why CEOs tend to be insular. That's why kings tend to be, they've got a problem because everyone's telling them what they want to hear. And everybody's got a hidden agenda. And, uh, but in any case, these guys are going to fan Nebuchadnezzar's ego where he pulls off a stunt that accomplishes its intended act, it traps these Jewish kids into a situation that ends up in the fiery furnace. But God is always in control. We'll learn that too. So read chapter 3. I'll call it Bower Burn or a symphony for the sycophants. And uh, the question you're going to ask you before you get, when you get to the end of the chapter, after you read chapter 3, the question I'm going to spring on you, I'll tell you in advance, is where's Daniel? There's a mystery that no one talks about in chapter 3 that we'll deal with next time. Praise God. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. I know many of you are probably tired of hearing about the Nephilim, but I worked it in tonight's study because I think it's fundamental. I know there's many people that are receiving the study that may not be a part of a regular team, and so I apologize if it's a little esoteric, and yet I think it's very fundamental. It startled me, not only just because it's kind of interesting, so with I don't think you'll understand the rest of the Old Testament and prophecy unless you really understand the reality of Genesis, the realities that lie behind Genesis 6 and following. So I encourage you to satisfy yourself that, on that issue. And uh, it is obviously not free of controversy, but I challenge you to check the Word of God and let it be your guide. Let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Oh, Father, we thank you for your Word, how precious it is. We thank you, Father, for preserving it through the years and preserving it through the centuries of attacks and attempts by the forces of darkness to discredit it. We thank you, Father. You've not only provided it, you've protected it. We thank you 
for its preciousness. We thank you too, Father, for this specific book. We thank you for Daniel and his faithfulness. We thank you for seeing him through his trials and bringing to us the lessons here. We do pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit the lessons not be wasted, that we indeed might glean from these passages not only a glimpse of the future as you would have us understand it, but also the example of this young man and his faithfulness to you, his commitment to prayer, and his resolve to stand in a time of paganism, in a time of darkness. Father, we thank you for the times that we're in. Yes, Father, we thank you for the attacks that are going on today. For we do know, Father, there must needs be heresies among us so that that which is approved may be made manifest. We thank you, Father, for that. We do pray, Father, that you, through your Holy Spirit and through your Word, would give us that illumination in these times of darkness that would not only in broad theological terms but in very specific personal terms illuminate that path before us that each of us might discover that specific mission destiny, challenge that you have for each of us as we commit ourselves without any reservation into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.